0: You know, the name of the series is The End. That's pretty cheerful, right? But actually, it is. There is a wonderful ending uh, to this story. It's actually the beginning of another one. And so today, we're going to be answering the question, when is Jesus returning? Last week, we asked the question, are we living in the end times? And the answer is, yes, we are. Um, The end times probably began after the resurrection of Jesus, because at that point we began the, the end. Uh, and then now the question today is, um, when is Jesus returning? Now I'd like to begin with this thought. We want him to return because you and I all need a champion. We don't live in a world that is the way it needs to be. We ourselves deal with the hurts and struggles and difficulties and the sadness of living in a fallen world and, and, and struggling to know how to, how to live life, and I know that some of you out there, you've gone through some really painful and difficult times, and you need a champion. You need someone to rescue you, someone to help you and carry you through the difficult times, and when I think about the fact that Jesus is returning, I get excited because we have a champion that did not just run off to heaven and leave us here to language, but he is coming back to receive us. 2,000 years ago, the disciples went with Jesus up to the, the, the uh, Mount of Olives, and they had this question for him in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? You know, people are interested in one, and they want to know about the end times things. Uh, the disciples wanted to know, Jesus, when is the end coming? What's going to be the sign of your coming? You know, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby and there were over 300 prophecies regarding the birth and life of Jesus Christ. Now, the prophecies uh, concerning the first coming of Jesus are what really helped me as a high school student wrap my arms around a faith that had some sort of an intellectual and historical basis. You know, I grew up in a missionary home. I've been to church so much in my life. Oh my goodness. This is one over man right here. But I, I love the story of the gospel. And then a freshman English teacher asked a question one day. That sent me into a personal crisis of faith. She said, you know, you all believe in Whatever religion your parents have taught you, you've been indoctrinated to believe that because that's what you do. You you follow what they teach. But what if it's not true? For those of you who believe that there is a God, what if there is no God? I walked out of that class and I had that question. I asked myself for the first time in my life, really, what if there really isn't a God? What if everything I've been taught has just been like the... The narrative of my parent, and it's not even, it's not even true. And I began to, I, I to pray a, a different prayer than I ever had prayed before. I, I said, God, I, I need to know if you're really real. I'm feeling really insecure here. Would you please show me if you're real? During that season of doubt, I picked up the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I love telling this story. I know you've heard it before, some of you. I started thumbing through the evidence. That's what I was looking for. I started reading through the book, and I got to the section that talks about the prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus. And I began to read them, 300 of them. I mean, how would God come to earth? Would he come in a rocket ship? Would he come in a white cloud with lightning flashing all around him? I mean, these are my ideas, right? I mean, how would God make his entrance into this earth, into this Earth? And, and then there is this passage. In the Bible, written 800 years before the birth of Jesus and Isaiah, that nobody actually understood. It goes like this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Well, what is the sign? Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Well, that's impossible, but this says it. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What in the world? So God would become a baby he, a woman would conceive, a virgin would conceive. And you know what? I had been in church long enough to know the story of how Mary, who was a virgin, one day found out she was expecting a baby and she couldn't understand what was going on. And the angel told him, you know, the child that, you have, that you're going to have is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Among those 300 prophecies is another one that says that he will be born in Bethlehem. Neither Joseph nor Mary lived in Bethlehem, but there was a taxation decree by the Roman Caesar that sent everybody back to the city of their ancestors, and theirs was Bethlehem. There would be a massacre of the children, according to Jeremiah 3115, written 700 years before it actually happened. Uh, and we know that Herod heard that a king had been born in Israel, and he got upset, and he sent his soldiers to massacre all of the, the children, all the little boys. It was, it's an awful thing. It happened. And then in Hosea, it says that it would be out of Egypt that I have called my, my, my son. Well, how in the world could he be from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, and why would he be in Egypt? But when Herod's massacre took place, the angel sent Joseph and this little family to Egypt to escape the threat of this murderous king. And then when the king died... The angel came back and called them back out of Egypt. I called my son. And how would he die? According to David's prophetic writing, 900 years before, uh, he, he would have his hands and his feet pierced. You know what that is? That's crucifixion. That was declared before crucifixion had yet been invented. And prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about Jesus came true. You know, for me as a young man, trying to figure out why I could believe what my parents had taught me, just because your parents have taught you something doesn't mean it's not true. True, I mean, some things they taught you is not true, but I, but I had to come to it on my own, and the prophecies helped me. While there are 300 prophecies of the first coming of Jesus, there are 2,000 regarding the second coming of Jesus Here's the question, do we live a life shaped by the expectation of the return of Jesus? Will our champion come? Will he make all things right? I mean, th- this, this is declared in scripture 2,000 times, yes and yes, he's coming. Now, you know, one of my struggles um, de- reading and studying prophecy, honestly, I don't like to study prophecy and the end time things. Can I tell you Why? Because growing up in church, I've heard a whole lot of prophecies that never came true. I mean, when I was young, I heard people talk about the fact that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Anybody ever heard that? Some of you are old enough to have been around for that. And he's not. He's an old man. I don't even know if he's still alive. I mean, I I heard many times that some American president was probably the Antichrist, usually from people who didn't vote for him. I mean, uh, every time, something, uh, one time, I was eight years old in the Philippines and one of the worst earthquakes hit Manila and we all got up and my mom was at the window so I went over there and she started screaming, Boyd, that's my dad's name, Boyd, Boyd, I think Jesus is coming back right now and I'm eight years old, standing at the window with the house shaking, watching the cars moving, thinking, oh my goodness, what, what is about to happen? Guess what? He didn't come then. But my mom was right to ask the question because one of the signs is earthquakes. And, and when, white, when, the, when the, uh, the, the pandemic came, plagues are one of those signs because we're living in a world that has not yet been redeemed. And these are the birth pains. These, I mean, it is indicative of the fact that it's not right, but something good is coming because we have a champion, and his name is Jesus. You know, I also remember Y2K. Anybody here old enough to remember Y2K? You, you can admit, some of you. Some of you have no idea what that is. Y2K, as we went from 1999 to 2000, the, the discussion everywhere was, well, we don't know if all the com- computer systems that we have built and depend on we'll manage the transition from 1999 to 2000 because we didn't program 2000 everything ended at 1999 so maybe the world's going to end in 1999 i mean people were buying generators they were they were uh, buying firearms ready for a war to break out. I mean, there was this whole cult that was built around this Y2K. And we were living in the Philippines and had just gone through six coup d'etats. And so one of the rumors that we were listening to was that there's going to, the opposition, the rebels are going to take advantage of a Y2K disruption and they are going to stage a revolt and replace the government. That's not a fun time. And so I remember Cindy, she says, Eddie, I think we better go buy some stuff. So she bought bottled water and canned goods, and the kids are helping her carry all of this inside. And they're like, what, why are we buying all this? And, and we said, well, because, you know, I mean, there, there, there may be something happen when we get to the year 2000. And so uh, New Year's, we went up to Faith Academy. I'm going to say that because some of you in the room know that. Up to the Hill and Faith Academy with other families to watch The most spectacular fireworks display you've ever seen in your life happens every year on December 31 in Manila. And then after that, you, you, you smell and see smoke for the next two or three days. It's like a war zone. It is, but it's fascinating. So we're standing on, on, the, on, the, on the hill, and Robert's right beside me, and the fireworks are going off. And, and then after, you know, we get past the, the, the midnight hour, and we're about 15, 20 minutes in, and the fireworks are still going. all of a sudden, Robert looks at me and says, hey, Dad, we're still here. Boy, Mom's going to be so mad. She wasn't mad. We drank the water and ate the cans, the stuff in the cans, whatever they were. You know, in the year nineteen, the year 990, 999, Okay, before they tripped into the first one thousand, um, they they also thought that the world was going to end. And so the people gathered around as Pope Sylvester II was going to deliver what they thought would be the last sermon they would ever hear. Many of them had sold their possessions, quit their jobs. And then one of the things that caught on was they began to confess their most horrible secret sins of their life to each other, believing that the end was coming and they needed to go ahead and make confession. And then the year 1000 came on January 1 and they looked around and they're like, ooh, I remember what you told me. I don't know when he's coming, but I know this. He's not going to leave this world in the mess we're in. He is coming again. His kingdom will come, and his plan will be accomplished. And why is he waiting? Matthew 24 verse uh, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, he's not dilly-dallying around. He is actively monitoring the advance of the gospel and the spreading of the good news all around the world. That's why we're coming back for World Project Night tonight. Because we have always celebrated the work of God around the world, even while we celebrate what he's doing right but when it comes to setting a date, I have to disappoint you because Matthew 24, Jesus says this, but on that day, but of that, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So it's kind of an interesting thing. We're supposed to live with an expectation that he could come today. Today. He could come today, everybody. He could come today. Would you tell the person beside you, he could come today? I want them to stay awake and know he could come today. It could happen. But no one knows the hour. Now, when I read about all of the end time stuff, there's a lot of stuff that scares me to death. I mean, it's the outpouring of the wrath of God on a sinful, rebellious, unwilling to change world. I mean, you read in the book of Revelation about darkening of the sun and the moon, devastating earthquakes, stars that fall from the sky. Those who survived the six seals cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then the seven trumpet judgments begin. There's hail and fire, destruction of much of the plant life, a plague of demonic locusts that torture the unsaved and march uh, of a, a demonic army that kills a third of humanity. I mean, now that's frightening. The judgment of God is real, and it is coming, but Jesus is coming too, and he's coming to take charge. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your leader, your forgiver, you can rest in the truth that when Jesus comes, he comes to bless you, to rescue you, to deliver you from the pain and the suffering of a fallen and corrupt world. The, the good news is that Jesus came to deliver us and rescue us. His plan for us is a good plan. Yes, we have suffering and struggle during this life, but we will not be defeated and we will ultimately be rescued. I had a conversation with a guy who was complaining about all the the bad things going on in our world, but he wouldn't listen to me that Jesus is coming. You know, in 1 Corinthians, verse 9, this, this is what we have to look forward to. As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It's, it's going to be so great. Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 4, but God... For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's coming. He's coming. He will fulfill all of the good things he has planned. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was, they were struggling, they were afraid about the end times, and, and, and I love what he he wrote in First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or the people that have died in Christ, the people who were followers of Jesus, they died. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest your sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to consider the prophecies that God will eventually bring to pass an outpouring of wrath and judgment for those who will not follow him. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the coming of Jesus is absolutely good news. Jesus came to rescue, to save, to heal, to deliver. He watches over his children very closely. I'm not saying that all of life's hardships and disappointments Losses and struggles will make sense down here. But his promise is to redeem all things. I talked to a guy who was angry at God. He was angry at God. He had a lot of hardship in his life. And one of the things that he expressly talked about was that he had uh, a couple uh, nephews that were born with special needs. And he saw the difficulty in their life, in the lives of their parents. And he was, he was telling me, how can a good God ever let that happen? And I told him, I just want to say, I so understand that path. And while there is a mystery of why these bad things happen, I can see that God accomplishes some incredibly great things in my sorrow and frustration what i have is a hope that my champion is coming and all things will be made right when jesus heard that john the baptist was put in prison john the baptist actually sent a couple of his disciples And they ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Because like John's in jail and there's not been any help. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he ends with this statement to John who would not get out of prison. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed are those who will allow a prevailing hope to carry them through the confusion of living in a fallen world under the plan of an almighty sovereign God. You know the difference between the people that get angry at God because of the bad things that happen and decide that he's not real. And followers of Jesus is that we still sometimes maybe, maybe get angry, frustrated, sad. But we're never hopeless. Because our champion is coming. He will fix everything when he returns. You know, Jesus answers uh, the question of the disciples, when are you coming by... Um, telling a parable in Matthew 25 um, about a wedding. Um, Have you ever been to a wedding where things go wrong? Because that's what the story's about. Have you ever been to a wedding where things didn't go right? Something went wrong? I have. Um, In fact, one of the most memorable weddings I was a part of was when um, the flowers were beautiful and plentiful, but no one thought to ask the bride if she was allergic to anything. In all of her glory carrying this most beautiful flower bouquet down the aisle, she comes to the front and she steps on to the platform surrounded by other bouquets of this same flower. And when we get to the part where she's supposed to answer, I do, do you, this bride, faints. They have to take her off stage. They take away all the flowers because someone figured out she's allergic to the flowers. They start fanning her. They give her something to drink. They revive her. They prop her back up on stage so that she can say, I do, I do. And then they go. That was a tough one. I heard about this one wedding. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, In the Philippines, you know, the, the groom spoke English, but it was the second language. And he was very nervous. And so when he stood before the preacher, the preacher said to him, well, do you promise to take her as your lawful wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health? And he answers, health, it, for richer or for poorer, richer. And the preacher stopped and said, no, really, um, this isn't multiple choice. <clears throat> oh, oh, really? Yeah, just say yes. Oh, okay, yes. That's the point of that. Well, Jesus tells the story in Matthew chapter 25 where things went wrong. Now, the way they did weddings back in those days were a little different. The, we, we call the engagement, which has become a really big deal nowadays, you know, with pictures and all kinds of production elements. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a nice thing. Um, back then, when the families agreed and the couple also agreed that they would be married, they would come together and they would have the betrothal. They would share a meal, and they actually at that moment would be legally bound to each other as husband and wife, but they did not consummate the wedding, and they didn't stay together because the man would go home, and he would have to build a room or a house on his family property and make ready for the bride. And then after, usually it took around a year, nobody knew exactly when. Isn't that interesting? No, nobody knew exactly when he was going to come. They didn't have email or Twitter or uh, Instagram or any of those things, and, and so you know, the day was going to come when the bride, bride had to be ready. The groom was going to come with his men, his attendants, and he would go to the bride's house, and she would have her attendants, and then he would go to get her, and then they would typically be in a torch-lit parade from one end of town from the bride's house to the groom's house where the party would begin, and that party could last a few days, And then finally, they would live together as husband and wife. I mean, it was an interesting thing, but that's the way they did it. We are so scheduled in this country, that's not the way the rest of the world works. And Jesus tells the story. The kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there, sh- there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut afterward. The other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know he's coming. The promise has been given, but you don't know when. Now, the first thing is that uh, because you don't know, you need to let an awareness of his coming shape your perspective every day in life. This is not the end. The champion's coming. He will redeem all things. We can survive today and we can manage even the most difficult of times because our perspective is the champion will come. And, and it, 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 it does help us. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Boy, it sounds a whole lot like um, the, the, the bridegroom going home to prepare a place. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. In Acts chapter 1, After the ascension of Jesus, everybody's looking up into the sky. He's gone. They can't see him anymore. Finally, a couple angels come, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heaven? I mean, he's gone. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Dear friends, we are already God's children. I mean, we really are. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he is. I mean, there's such expectation that's a part of the truth of the coming of Jesus. Over 2,000 references to his coming. When he came the first time, he came as a baby in a ranger Wrapped in swaddling clothes, largely unnoticed and quite ignored. But when he comes again, he will come riding on a white horse and he will be a conquering king. And the title written on him will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's coming. We've got to live with that expectation. Number two, um, uh, we, we, we've got to manage our walk. Check your oil. Here's the deal. There, this is a warning. There are people who go to church all the time. People who grew up in Christian families and have Christian friends. But they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the warning is you can't borrow other people's spirituality. The warning is you, you can't borrow somebody else's relationship with Jesus. You gotta get your own. It has to be for you, it has to be personal. You, you, you cannot, you cannot assume. One of the reasons we have starting point classes so that we can discuss this and make sure no one is confused to think that by joining the church, that's the way to God. No, Jesus is the way. The sad thing about this story was that these five foolish virgins who didn't really have the oil, when they go, they were told, I don't know you. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, one of the most frightening verses too. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. You've got to have your own walk with God. You can't borrow it. And then for all of us, we've got to manage our own walk because here's the truth we do not not drift into greater spirituality and righteousness, we drift in the wrong direction. We have to walk intentionally to make sure that we're growing spiritually Ephesians chapter 5 says that we shouldn't be drunk with wine when in excess but we should be filled with the spirit we should speak to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs you know what we did this morning was important because we were reminded of all the right things one of the reasons why you need to be in a small group or a Sunday school class or a Bible study is because you have got to focus on your walk with God. You've got to keep your oil reserves high. You've got to make sure that you are strong. You, you, you won't be automatically, if you don't give it some effort, you, you will backslide. That's an old good Baptist term. But, but if, you, if you'll know that he's coming and know that you can't, you can't coast... you got to know him and walk with him. You know, the people who are looking forward to the coming of Jesus are the people that talk to him every day. You know, the people that are afraid for him to come back are the people that aren't sure if everything's okay because they haven't talked to him in a long time. B.J. Thomas was a five-time Grammy Award winner and actually was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And he died a few weeks ago on May 29. He became very famous with the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Anybody heard that song? Okay. His song also was picked up and used in the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Uh, The song won Thomas an Academy Award and spent four weeks in the 70s, uh, 1970, as the number one song in America. I mean, this guy was making it happen. And then in 1975, another hit song was, uh, Hey, won't you play another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song? Anybody know that song? I saw one hand. Okay, good. Thomas was born August 7, 1942 in Hugo, Oklahoma, to parents Vernon and Geneva Thompson. They named him Billy Joe. He was raised in Houston where his childhood was was dominated by baseball, music, and his father's alcoholism. Success did not make him happy. In fact, it almost killed him. As he later recounted in his memoir, he started doing more and more drugs and spending thousands of dollars every day on cocaine, cocaine, which he supplemented with amphetamines and attempted to balance with Valium and marijuana. His personal relationships became rocky and his public performances irregular. Increasingly, he failed even to show up for concerts. In 1975, he took 80 pills at once, He was surprised when he woke up. And when he woke up, he says, I remember asking the nurse why I was still alive. She responded, God must want you to accomplish more here in this world. He got home on January 27, 1976. His wife, Gloria, told him that she had accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior and introduced him to an evangelical rodeo worker who explained to Thomas how he too could be saved. The man invited Thomas to pray with him and Thomas poured out his heart to God this is what he said I began a 20 minute prayer that was the most sincere thing I had ever done in my life he later wrote I got straight with the Lord everything I could think of and the bridge between 10 years of hell and a right relationship with God was just 20 minutes a prayer And when B.J. Thomas died and he went to heaven, Jesus knew his name. Jesus said, oh, yeah, B.J., I know you. I remember that time you talked to me and you prayed and asked me to save you. And I said, yes, come on in. I'm your champion. We got it. know that's what Jesus wants for everybody he wants for you if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you may even think it sounds kind of odd that a prayer of faith to Jesus who you can't see but you've heard about and many believe him and could change your life yeah you could say that but he will change your life. He will save you. Because he is your champion if you'll surrender to him. He loves you so much he went to a cross. And he died on that cross and he paid for your sin and my sin and all of our sin. And then he rose again. And if anybody will come to him, receive him as savior he will change our life I want to ask you to bow your heads if you will please